What is the difference between a hunter and a fisherman? A hunter lies in wait, and a fisherman waits and lies. <laughs> Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 103. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. I said good morning because I've been a bad girl and I've been partying this Halloween weekend instead of finishing up the podcast. (laughs) So now I get to wake up really, really early (laughs) before my kids wake up to record the intro and the outro, which is why my voice is a little bit raspy. I'm actually not sick. It's just really, really early and I stayed up really late last night. So I'm just a little bit groggy. I hope everyone had a wonderful, happy Halloween. I'm actually recording this on Halloween day, but at like 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) So Halloween hasn't actually happened for our family quite yet, but I can tell you that Corbin, the three-year-old, is going as a fireman. I got his costume secondhand at the Here We Grow Again sale last month. And Colt is the one-and-a-half-year-old. He is going to be the Dalmatian because that's adorable. (laughs) And I got his outfit secondhand as well. I got white shirt and pants and I painted black dots on them and then took a white headband and attached black felt ears to it. And my husband is going to wear boots, khaki work pants, and a navy blue t-shirt with a red suspenders because suspenders are sexy. Except I couldn't actually find real suspenders anywhere. So we're going to use red duct tape and just tape on suspenders. And he will also be a fireman along with my son. I've learned that my husband will only participate in Halloween if I put together the costumes and his has to be a (laughs) t-shirt. Then he will wear the Halloween costume. If it's anything else, he's not going to go for it. And that just leaves me. And what am I going to be? Well, I tried really hard to go around to different secondhand shops and I was trying to find a shirt that had fire on it, which has proven to be very difficult. And so it got to the point where I was going to buy an old secondhand t-shirt and just paint fire all over it. But then I had to go buy fabric paint and that is not cheap. It was almost like $6 a bottle and I wanted three colors, (laughs) red, orange, and yellow. While I was at the craft store, looking at the fabric paint, thinking, man, that's so much plastic that I'm really trying to avoid. I'm really trying to do this secondhand. I really don't want to be doing this. I looked down and below the fabric paint area was the bandanas and they were 99 cents each. And there was a fire bandana. And I thought, perfect, that I can use. So I bought two of them and I will just use safety pins and pin one to the front of my shirt and one to the back of my shirt. And I'm going to be the hot mama. I mean, I'm going to be the fire. that my firefighting family is going to put out. With the exception of the bandanas, everything was done secondhand or with stuff that we already had on hand. And I do plan on reusing those bandanas for a lot of things. I can put them on the dog and make him look pretty bad, eh? And then I also can use them for wrapping up Christmas gifts or any future gifting event. And that would be my dog who has just insisted on joining me. And he promised he would be quiet, but he's not. There is a lot more stuff that I want to catch up on with you this week. However, we have a very long episode ahead, so we're going to keep the catch-up segment very short in order to bring everything back to balance. Previously on the show, we had Amanda Carlsvik, who came on to explain to us that you don't have to be vegan in order to be sustainable, that you can still eat meat, but there is a right and a wrong way to do it. Obviously, the most sustainable is vegan, 
then vegetarian, and then flexitarian. But if you do want to eat meat, the best way is to eat the smaller animals like rabbit and poultry, and then as you work your way up in size to goats and pigs and eventually cows, the sustainability factor is reduced. This is because of factory farming and their wastefulness of resources. And the bigger the animal, the more resource intensive it is to raise it. And recently I realized we completely overlooked another sustainable option, hunting. That is a sensitive topic, and I'm gonna try my best to explain it in a manner that does not upset anyone. So please be kind, and remember the purpose of today's topic is to discuss hunting as another sustainable option for those who choose to eat meat. This is not in any way to be a discussion on vegan versus eating animals or pro or anti-guns. If you are vegan, that is wonderful. This particular episode may not be for you. You're welcome to skip it, and I'm happy to talk to you again next week. Or you can listen and gain some new understanding and insights about hunting. And since using a gun is a method of hunting, there will be some talk about guns. We will also discuss bow hunting methods too. And lastly, I want to clarify this episode is not promoting hunting as much as it is meant to explain hunting, the regulations, and how it promotes wildlife management. So let's get to it. Many people are bothered by hunting. Do keep in mind that the average consumer eats 144 pounds of meat a year, virtually all of it raised in cages too small for the animal to even turn around. I do encourage vegetarian or vegan lifestyles for both sustainability as well as health benefits. Please do recognize that discouraging hunting is effectively promoting consumption of an animal raised under inhumane conditions, packed in styrofoam, and shipped a thousand miles with a diesel engine to a grocery store, as well as clearing of land to support that animal. By hunting, you're getting fresh meat that has eaten a natural diet, raised free range, and there is no styrofoam or plastic packaging involved. Not to mention, the hunter also fully utilizes all of the parts of the animal for leather, stock, dog chews, etc. Here today to help discuss the pros and cons of hunting is my husband, Channing Chenoweth. Say hello. Hello, how's everybody doing? All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. All right. I'm excited. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So we're (laughs) going to talk about hunting today. First, let's define what hunting is. The definition of hunting is to pursue for food or in sport. So it's like there's two different groups of hunters. Yes, that is true. There are hunters that hunt for food There are other hunters that hunt just in sport, um, for trophies maybe. Can you define what a trophy is? Yeah, I mean, well, you have trophies, you know, for like deer hunting, you know, people that may go for just like a trophy buck, you know, just a big, a big buck, you know, one that you'd see on the wall. Like one that they would brag about? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And then you also have some trophy hunters that may travel around the world and, and kill, you know, you've seen that probably with like lions, elephants, uh, zebras, things of that nature. I don't think that they go for food, really. They're literally going just to like get the kill and brag about it to everybody. I think that's the group of hunters that most people have an issue with. Yes. And you identify with the other group of hunters. Yeah, I hunt for food, not not really for a trophy. Um, I mean, if I could get a trophy buck, that's a plus. But at the end of the day, I'm definitely going to be going for food for sure. 
So even if you got the trophy book, you're still going to eat it. Absolutely, yes. Correction, your whole family would eat it because that's why you're hunting, right? To feed the whole family. Yes, absolutely. Let's review the history of hunting because you told me this and I found it really fascinating and I want to share it with the listeners. Well, hunting has been a thing for millions of years. I believe about three million years. Basically, Uh, ever since humans existed, we've been hunting because that's how we eat. (laughs) And the way it started was humans would actually eat recently deceased animals. Uh, So later on, they kind of discovered, hey, let's, instead of waiting for them to die, let's make a weapon and go kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody wants to be a hunter. Many people would prefer to be a vegan, which is perfectly okay, and I completely support that. So the concept of being a vegan came about in 1944, which means it was not quite even 80 years ago. So we've been hunters for millions of years, and being a vegan is a really new concept. It is important to support being a vegan because the world's population is growing and the need for meat and protein is growing. And so finding alternative sources like plant-based proteins is very, very important. Unfortunately, the vegan movement is very slow and not everybody's on board. And I'm not here to convince everybody to become vegan, but I do want to have a conversation in regards to factory farming because that is extremely resource intensive and is taking up a whole lot of land. And so now we are competing with factory farmed animals on land, like whether we as humans are going to live on that land or we're going to use it for factory farm animals. So what's happening is a lot of rainforests are being completely chopped down in order to make room for a cattle farm to feed us. I really don't want to encourage anybody to support factory farms. There are many other ways to go about being more sustainable, and this is starting sustainability. So I'm not trying. The purpose of this conversation is not to upset anybody who is vegan. In fact, if you're vegan, you're more sustainable than me because I'm not 100% vegan. I try to go meatless often, but I can't do it 100% of the time. So hats off to you. I wish that I could shop at a farmer's market all year round, but that is also not an option where I live. And so this is something that our family does because it's another way to be sustainable where we still get our meat, but we are not supporting factory farming and we're not wasting resources that way. When we hunt the meat that we get, we cherish and we make sure that we use it all up. None of it is just going to waste away because it was so much work to get that meat. And that's why today we are discussing hunting, because it is another way that you can be sustainable if you choose to go down the hunting route. So this whole conversation is not pro or anti-hunting or pro or anti-vegan. This conversation is just to learn more about hunting, specifically the ethical way to go about hunting, the right way to hunt, to be an animal conservationist. And so we're going to touch base on that next. So let's back it up a little bit. Why do you enjoy hunting so much? Well, I enjoy the challenge of it. It definitely requires a lot of skill, a lot of patience, uh, some strategy. Uh, It requires a lot of training. You know, if you bow hunt, you have to shoot your bow pretty much year round, keep it sighted in, stay on top of it. You know, same thing with a gun. If you rifle hunt, you have to know that when you shoot at an animal that you're going to get a kill shot. I mean, you can't go out there and just guess 
like, oh, I'm just going to shoot at this deer and hope and pray that it goes down. I mean, if that's... If that's your level, you probably shouldn't be hunting. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like to me... So I've never been hunting. I don't think I've disclosed that. I've never been hunting. And you go, and we've been together almost 10 years at this point. To me, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it's definitely a lot of work. It it doesn't seem like it would be, but it's it's work year round. I mean, you have to you have to be in good shape. You have to have patience, depending on what type of hunting you're doing. So, since it is so much work year round, when you finally do get an animal, that's the most rewarding part. Yes. And I think something else that we haven't discussed yet that you have told me in the past is that hunting is something in your family so you're raised with hunting and it's also something that you're excited to teach our children one day yes that is correct your style of hunting would be more along the lines of an animal conservationist and i think that's where a lot of people who are anti-hunting are hearing that version of the argument is that it is to help regulate wildlife what would happen if we did not hunt at all well, I mean, you can look at Kenya. Back in 1977, they banned hunting completely, and since then they've lost 70% of their wildlife. How? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> like, if you stop hunting, wouldn't the wildlife grow? Well, you would think that, but, I mean, there's all kinds of issues that they have. I mean, they have, you know, if you stop hunting, then you also stop hunting predators, so you have more predators. But I think one of the big issues they have is with the animals coming into town, like into like urban areas, you know, searching for food or water or whatever they need. And what ends up happening is they become a threat to humans. And so the humans have to put them down just out of their own safety. You also get a lot more poachers. I mean, people are going to hunt whether it's legal or not. I mean, if you stop. If you just say, you know, hunting is now illegal, nobody can hunt, now what's going to happen is there's going to be a ton of poaching. Because the price just went up. Exactly. Kind of like when the U.S. banned alcohol and then prohibition took place. Like, it's still yeah. going on. <laughs> and now it's even more fun because it's illegal, <laughs> except with hunting. Now. Right. So another thing about Kenya is that since 1977, when they banned hunting, they've also had issues... They've seen an increase in unemployment, starvation in humans, and, you know, obviously poaching. And they still have it banned to this day, or did they lift yeah. that law? No, it's it's banned. Oh. Here in the U.S., do we have any places where it's banned completely? No. But here, we actually do a pretty good job of regulating it. Yeah, so every state is different when it comes to you know, the regulations, the bag limits, uh, what animals you can hunt and what you can't. I mean, you know, there's some states where you can hunt a certain animal that in another state that animal might not even exist there. For example, uh, alligators. There might be a state or some states down south that allow you to hunt alligators, but then you go up north and alligators just don't even exist. And, but they would have a limit with the alligators. Yeah, so there's a limit. So, you know, you buy your hunting license and you get tags that come with it. Okay, so we've got the hunting license. What is a tag? You tag an animal when you harvest it. So, like here in Indiana, for example, you get three white-tailed deer tags if you buy a con. That's how many you're allowed per season, per year. 
and you can either do two bucks. I'm sorry, you can do two does and a buck or three does. And when you harvest the animal, you have to tag it. You put the tag on there, and the tag has to stay on there until the deer is fully harvested and disposed of. And the purpose of the tags is what? It If you get stopped by DNR or a game warden or whoever, police officer, anybody, then they know that you used one of your tags on the deer, and that tells them you know how many you have left or... That you did it right. That you did it, exactly. You did it according to the rules and regulations. Yeah. So if they pull somebody over and there aren't any tags, then what would happen? Well, if if you have an untagged deer or any animal that's untagged, you're going to get a fine for sure. If they feel the, the need to, they will confiscate the animal. You will get none of the meat. They'll also confiscate your hunting license. And depending on the nature of the crime, they could actually take away your license for years to come. Maybe even a lifetime. So if a hunter goes out and illegally kills an animal, then DNR catches them. DNR is Department of Natural Resources. Then they take the animal away so that person doesn't even get to eat them. But that's such a waste of that animal. No. No, the animals get donated to a family in need. Oh, well, that's good to know. As we were discussing, there are a lot of rules and regulations around hunting, including where you can hunt. Yeah, so obviously you can hunt private land if you own land or if you know someone that owns land that's willing to let you hunt there Uh, there's also a lot of public land out there some states or possibly all all the of the united states have uh wildlife management areas what's a wildlife management area it is literally an area where we manage wildlife dnr and uh, wildlife biologists keep track of the wildlife in the area Um, this helps them determine you know, bag limits, size limits, you know, the price of a hunting license, things of that nature. I think some people would argue that we need to let nature take its course and that we don't need to be managing wildlife that'll do its own thing. What would happen if we stopped managing wildlife? Well, if you stopped managing wildlife and you did away with all these wildlife management areas, they would just eventually get turned into something like a shopping mall or a, a neighborhood, a subdivision. Another issue I believe we would have is, uh, you know, diseases would not be controlled. You know, there's diseases out there like chronic waste disease. What is that? Well, it's a, it's a disease that's in, you know, like deer. There's no cure for it. The only way to stop the spread of it is to euthanize them. If you're a hunter and you kill a deer that has it, you cannot harvest the deer. Uh, is it unsafe? Yes, it's unsafe. Does it spread easily amongst the deer? It does. It spreads. The symptoms, usually well, what you can see in them is that they kind of walk around like a zombie. They're real slow. They just look awful. Their fur will fall out, things like that. You can can typically tell by looking at them. So would it actually be beneficial to hunt those deer and just put them out of their misery and stop the spread of the disease? Well, I don't know that I would... If I saw one in the woods that I knew for a fact was chronic waste disease, I would probably just call DNR and report it and let them make that decision. I don't think I would take it upon myself to take that deer. Uh, They may require me to put my tag on that deer if I shoot it, which then I couldn't eat it. So it'd be like a waste of a tag. So it'd be a waste of a tag, and I only get three of those a year. So, You know, something that I didn't ask you 
was what happens if you go hunting and you don't fill up your tags, if you don't get all three deer? What happens to those tags? They just carry over to next year, so you get like six <laughs> the following year? No, they don't. Uh, on the last day of season, they are expired. You do not get a refund, but the money still goes towards wildlife management. You just got to think of it that way. You know, you still contributed. You were out there in the woods. You were hunting. You were looking for deer You or whatever the animal. And your money that you spent on your hunting license, your tags, wildlife management stamp, anything like that, it all goes toward that research. And so then they can determine what we get next year. What, How long of a season do we get? What bag limits do we get? What size limits do we get? All of that. I mean, if people aren't contributing to that, then the answer is nobody's hunting. Okay, you rattled off a lot of rules and regulations. Can we go back and clarify the specific rules and regulations that must be abided by in order to legally and ethically hunt? Yeah, so every state's different and every animal is different. For deer here in Indiana, we typically get about a four-month bow season. Um, Obviously, bow hunting is way harder than rifle hunting. It has a way lower success rate. Which is why it's probably got a longer season. Uh, yeah, so four-month bow season. How long is the rifle season here in Indiana? Two weeks. So that's why it's a little bit harder to get a deer. With, you've only got two weeks, and you work for ten of those days. Right, So yeah. unless you're cashing in your vacation time, <laughs> it's really hard to go hunting. That's true. Yep, and while you're in the woods hunting during those two weeks, so is everybody else. So you have that going against you, too. So basically, once somebody else goes bang and gets a deer you're you're kind of done pretty much because all the other deer nearby have just taken off (laughs) yes that is true but you also have uh you know bag limits obviously you get like i said two does and a buck per year or three does why does because i would think you would need them to repopulate is it because there's is it because there's too much population here in Indiana? We're trying to narrow it down. I wouldn't say there's too much population. Indiana actually, uh, if you look back on the history of Indiana, deer were actually extinct in Indiana not too long ago. It actually took a lot of work to get them back to where we're at now. So, yeah, <clears throat> tell us about that. So, white-tailed deer in Indiana, back in 1893, the last reported wild deer was killed in Knox County, Indiana. 1934 through 1942, there were 296 deer purchased from the state of the state of Indiana purchased the deer from Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And then in 1943, the deer population was estimated at around 900. You mean like they purchased them and had them like shipped over here, like on a yes, train? Yes. Well, I don't know how they got here, but they purchased them and they released them in the wild with the intent to uh, repopulate the deer in Indiana. That was like fifty years, eighteen ninety three to nineteen forty two. Yep. Yeah, so we're talking almost fifty years, and then they went yeah, and purchased deer, deer. Yes, deer didn't even exist for almost fifty years in Indiana. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, a lot of. Uh, People that have lived in Indiana their whole life and even hunted in Indiana their whole life didn't even know that. So in 1943, the deer population was estimated at 900. So 900 deer in the whole state of Indiana. And then in 1951, they had the first deer hunting season in 58 years. I bet everybody was very excited. (laughs) 
Yeah, the deer season was three days. So November of 1951, three days of deer season, and they had a 13% success rate. Only three days. So everybody that hunted during those three days, only 13% actually killed a deer. So they kept it really short, a three-day window, because they worked so hard to build up the population. Exactly. Okay. And then around 1955, they released 111 more deer. 1956, a year later, they started a program uh, with deer trapping and relocation. So basically what they were doing is trapping the deer that were in... When the deer would, uh, there'd be a, a high population of them in one small area, so they would trap some of them and move them to a different area of the state. Is that for like breeding and genetics, so they didn't have yeah. inbreeding yeah. and mutations? Well, that's probably part of it, and they probably had, you know, there might have been a little section of Indiana that had all the deer, and the rest of Indiana had none, so they were probably just trying to diversify it a little bit and have deer kind of everywhere in Indiana. They ended up relocating 500 deer. And then in 1975, the deer harvest number was just under 9,000. Oh, so that that worked. Yeah, yeah, their plan worked. Relocating, the, you know, purchasing the deer, relocating the deer, putting the deer where they need to be. Making um, the hunting season only three days. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, you know, 1975, just under 9,000 deer harvested. Ten years later in 1985... They had 32,000 deer harvested. When you say harvested, that means that's what the hunters killed. The hunter, yes, harvested. That means that the hunter killed the deer and used and ate the meat, yes. Okay. That sounds like a lot, but what that means is there was a whole lot more than that of live deer running around. Yeah, absolutely. So because the deer were populating so quickly, that's why now today in 2021... The hunting season is a whole lot longer than three days. Yeah, I mean, a four-month bow season, a, a two-week gun season. You also get a muzzle loader season. I've never muzzle loader hunted. Plan on getting into it one day, but it's just something I haven't done. But I believe it's also two two weeks. Muzzle loader, that sounds expensive. I think we should talk about that first. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said one day. <laughs> No, but again, uh, muzzle loader is also challenging. It's not, uh, you, you are shooting them like you would with the rifle, but you don't just have access to multiple bullets very quickly. I mean, you, you kind of get one shot and then it takes a whole lot to reload it and it takes a lot of practice shooting them. It's, you know, it's a lot more difficult than your standard rifle. Just curious. What are the deer numbers now? So in 2020, they had uh, 124,180 deer harvested in Indiana. Wow. (laughs) Maybe pretty soon they'll be extending gun season even more because that's a lot of deer. Yeah. So Texas, for example, um, they get a four-month bow season as well, but they get a two-month gun season. But they must have a lot more deer, I assume. I would assume so. I haven't researched too much on that, but... Living in Texas growing up, there were deer everywhere. That's for sure. You know, it's interesting. So I grew up here in Indiana, and then I went to Texas, and that's where I met you. I remember when I went to Texas, I noticed that the deer there were tiny, as in like maybe three feet tall. I remember the place where I worked had a field out in front of it, and I walked up one morning, and I saw all the deer out there, and it was in the town, so none of those deer were getting hunted. So they were totally comfortable being all over that field. (laughs) 
And I thought it was a whole field of baby deer. And I thought, wow, there are so many baby deer. And you told me, no, that's just the deer. And I was like, man, the deer in Indiana are gigantic. And now I know why. Because they went and bought deer and shipped them over here and did genetics. So, like, they bred oh, yeah. so they really got, kick butt deer. Yeah, <laughs> they got the best genetics. And and another thing with that is the further north that you go, the bigger they are. It has, it has a lot to do with the heat retention. You know, they eat... They eat a lot more to stay warm. Oh, and in Texas, it's warm all the time. In, in Texas, it's a lot warmer. The winters are not nearly as harsh. That has a lot to do with it. I mean, g- genetics has a lot to do with it. The heat retention has a lot to do with it. We have been talking a lot about deer because we're here in Indiana, and that's it's deer season right now, and that's one of the main animals that you hunt for. But I also want to bring up the point of hunting in regards to animals that are considered a nuisance. Like when we lived in Florida, it was pythons. And when we were in Texas, it was coyotes and feral hogs and coyotes here in Indiana. Can you tell me a little bit more about why it's so important to hunt the nuisance animals? A majority of the, of the nuisance animals are, uh, are actually not even, they're an invasive species. They're not, they're not native to the United States. Like feral hogs, for example, or... Not just in Texas, but they're in Florida. Uh, they're all over the South. Um, Actually, I have a funny story that I kind of want to share because I just learned it last week. All right. Angela is my executive chef where I work, and she told me a story that when Christopher Columbus came over here to the Americas, they when they first landed, they let loose a bunch of baby pigs. And then they went about exploring, and then they came back. And when they came back to the area, the pigs were grown, but they had gone feral. So they had to kill them because the pigs were aggressive and they were injuring the people. So they killed all these pigs. And because it was way back when they didn't exactly have refrigerators, they didn't know what to do with all the meat. And that's where pigs for breakfast, bacon and sausage, that's where that trend started because they were trying to figure out how to cook up all of these pigs. So that's, so thank you, Christopher Columbus, for the push of breakfast, sausage and bacon. That's where that came from. Anyways, continue with your story, Channing, because I just learned that and thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, well, they are extremely aggressive. Um, I've heard stories of people in Texas that mostly with people that live kind of out in the country. uh, I mean, they'll pull up in their driveway and not even be able to get out of their car and go in their house because they're surrounded by these pigs. And they're big. They're Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they're not like the cute little ones that you see people like having as a pet. Like these are... What, like 200 pounds? Right. Uh, up to that, yeah. You don't um, even weigh 200 pounds. I do, yeah. How much do you weigh? 205. Okay, so it's a pig your size. Yeah. Okay, so you're 205 and you're what? 5'11". 5'11", 205. So it's a pig your size. Yeah. That's that's they, big. They can get up to that big, yeah, or possibly bigger. They are responsible for human deaths, for sure. They will actually run cattle off and eat what the cattle are eating. And so you, know, you have a farmer that spends money on cattle feed. He goes and puts a, a few bags of feed out for his cows. As soon as he walks away, the hogs run the cows off and then eat up all the feed. They root. They, uh, they'll dig holes. Cows and horses can step in those holes and break their legs, which typically requires you to put them down because it's too expensive to... It's more expensive to fix their leg than it is to buy a new cow. That's a shame. Yes. Um, they also root in the water. You know, they contaminate water. They carry up, up to 40 parasites. 
Um, up to 30 viral bacteria, diseases. And you still want to eat them? Well, if you cook them, you know. <laughs> uh, they cause car accidents, you know, that packs of them will run across the road, especially at night. They're real active at night. They kill a lot of native animals like birds. They'll actually feed on nests, bird nests, oh. and eat the eggs. They compete with native animals for habitat. You, know, you might have an animal that was going to sleep here tonight, but he's not now because the, the wild hogs rolled in. You know, they'll kill turkeys. They'll kill anything they can get get a hold of and eat it. What about coyotes? Why are they a nuisance? Why are they a pest? Coyotes mostly are a pest for farmers. Um, they'll eat farm animals, chickens. They could also be dangerous to humans, especially children. So these animals in most states, if not all states, it's legal to kill them year-round. You mentioned coyotes are harmful to humans, especially children. And we live in a neighborhood, in a pretty decent-sized town. It's, I mean, it's a smaller town. It's not a big city, but it's a pretty decent-sized town. And in our neighborhood, we do have cornfields around us, and we can hear the coyotes at night. And of course, on our little neighborhood chat, like we have a little Facebook group chat, there will be times where they'll say, hey, spotted a coyote this morning running through the neighborhood. People will see it on their ring cameras. It'll be 7 a.m. And they'll say, make sure your kids stay inside. We don't want the kids waiting out for the bus because there's a coyote running through the neighborhood. And because we're in a neighborhood, we can't shoot the coyotes. We just have to be guarding our children. Like this is, they are a real threat. <laughs> it's not just like some kid running around out in the middle of the cornfield. Like they're in the neighborhood. They, they are a concern for parents. Yeah, that's true. And no. for our pets, they're going to eat our cats and dogs. <laughs> the ones that we love. <laughs> yeah, so that's the biggest problem with coyotes. You know what you haven't talked about yet is the pythons in Florida. Oh, yeah. So Why are they an issue? So pythons are an invasive species. They were, they're not native. I'm not exactly sure how they got here. Obviously, somebody released them. They kind of took over like in the Everglades and South Florida. They might go to like northern Florida. How big are pythons? Ooh, I don't know. Because I think they most get... people are thinking of like the pet store python. No, these these get pretty big. I, I think I'd say on average somewhere around 10 to 15 feet. Uh, I think they've had some up to 18 feet. So they could definitely eat a human. Yes, some of them. I think they've even had reports of pythons eating alligators in Florida. Yes, alligators, deer, hogs. What was that thing called in Florida when everybody got to go hunt the pythons? Well, I believe it was kind of like a bounty. People would go and hunt a python, kill it in the woods, in the Everglades or wherever, and turn the turn it in and get paid for it. Yeah. Because they are straight up a nuisance. They are not wanted. They, they kill family pets, farm animals, children. There's reports I remember seeing like in Orlando and stuff when people would go outside at six o'clock in the morning to clean their swimming pool and there'd be a 10 foot python in the bottom of the pool just hanging out. <laughs> There'd also be reports of people opening up the front door and being greeted by an alligator just hanging yeah, out. That happened too. I'm calling into work today. Sorry, can't leave my house. <laughs> when it comes to hunting these pests, do you have to have a license to hunt them or can just anybody go out there and just get rid of them? Uh, that depends on the state. Typically, you have to have a hunting license. 
So you have to prove that you know what you're doing with a yeah. gun and that yeah. you're not an so, idiot. <laughs> so in most states, in order to buy a hunting license, you have to take Hunter's Ed, which is like an eight-hour course that goes over like firearm safety. It goes over the rules of hunting, how to make a good shot, things like that. You have to show proof of that, that you've taken that class before you can even buy a hunting license. Because you don't just you don't want just anybody out in the woods with a gun shooting at whatever they want. I mean, there's... That sounds dangerous. Yeah, but there are no tags for a nuisance animal. So I am going to speak to the sustainability part of this podcast. I understand that they are pests and that we want to get rid of them, but I really hate to just see somebody out there killing a whole bunch of animals and just that's it and just wasting them. There are things that can be done with the animal. Whether you're able to eat it or not, you can still do stuff like with the skin or the fur or the skulls. Yeah, so wild hogs, feral hogs, you can eat them. I mean, I've harvested one and eaten it. You had pork chops and bacon. It's just like a pig. Yeah, it's not very much different than a pig, you know, a farm pig. It might taste a little bit more gamey, but there's ways around that too. What about the things that you can do with an animal that you had to have a tag for, like a deer or a bear or a doll, ram, sheep, what can you do? Obviously eat them. I imagine there's parts of the animal that you cannot eat, like their guts. Like oh, you yeah. don't want to eat like the stomach and the no, stomach acid. No, you can eat the call fat. What is call fat? Call fat is, a, it comes from their digestive system, but it's like a... Oh, is it like the fat around their yeah. digestive system, their abdominal fat? Yeah. Because I was like, you don't want to eat the intestines because that's going to have... Yeah, so there's recipes with the call fat where you can actually make make things up and you wrap it in the call fat kind of like uh like a bacon wrapped jalapeno something like but that now it's a call fat wrapped jalapeno what else can you get with the non-meat parts of the animals well so the antlers you know you can use them as dog treats uh you can make things out of them like knives table legs curtain holders wine racks um you can also use them as game calls a game call yeah. That? So, you, like, you can take two antlers when you're in a tree stand and rub them together to make it sound like two bucks fighting, and it will actually attract deer to your oh, area. Okay. You know, and then as far as the bones, you can make needles, knives, fish hooks, jewelry. There's a recipe for asabuco. What is asabuco? So, asabuco, you basically it's the bone, the shin bone, so between the knee and the ankle of it, like a deer. Or, you know, an elk or moose. You basically cut it into like one inch or inch and a half slices with so, like, so with like, like a coins. saw. So it looks like a thick coin. Yep. And there's a way that you cook it where when you take it out, you basically just get the bone marrow out of the middle of it. And it's really good. You Like you just slurp it out of the middle there? You might be able to slurp it or, or get it out with a spoon or something like that. But yeah, people love it. It's good. Listeners, you can't see my face, but I'm cringing just a little bit. (laughs) Well, there's a lot that you can do with the skin and the hides, right? I know Native Americans, once they would harvest a deer, they would tan the skin and turn it into a leather. They'd make moccasins out of it, pants, shirts, all their clothing. A lot of, like, everything can be done with leather. Yeah, you can make rugs, boots. Have a bear rug. Yeah. We don't have one, listeners, just so you know. No, we don't. Not yet. (laughs) I was like, although I think you would like one. (laughs) So basically, there's a lot that you can do to use every part of the animal, whether it is a nuisance or a pest animal, 
or if it's one that is a native animal that you have to get tags and follow all the regulations for. And by using all the parts of the animal, that would be more along the lines of an ethical hunter doing ethical hunting. Can you give me more detail in regards to ethical hunting versus unethical hunting? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing with ethical hunting would be obeying the law, following the rules. I mean, they're there for a reason. Uh, You know, unethical hunting would be obviously breaking the law, um, not using the correct weapon. Uh, You know, you don't want to deer hunt with a twenty-two because a twenty-two is not going to kill a deer. It's just going to wound it, and it is illegal. You need to be smart about before going hunting and make sure that everybody involved is supportive of your decision. Yeah, you definitely need to know your property lines. You need to be prepared and speak to the neighbors maybe ahead of time if, if need be and say, you know, let them know what you're doing. You got to be aware of your seasons, obviously. You got to have your hunting license and your tags, wildlife management stamp if that's required. You need to know your bag limits. You know, you have tags for your for what you can hunt. You need to know your size limits. Some states might require that you, the animals that you're killing are a certain size. So by a certain size, I think that also takes into account their age, right? Yeah, you, typically it means, you know, that you're hunting an adult. So a deer, for example, like in Texas, it has to have a, a male with antlers, has to have a 13-inch spread. So what does that mean? Inside the inside of the antlers need to measure 13 inches at the widest part. That can get tricky because sometimes you see a full grown male deer muscular good looking deer fully legal fully everything and after the hunter takes him and measures him he realizes well he's 12 and a half inches and then what happens well if they're smart they call the game wardens dnr and say hey i made a mistake usually what will happen is an officer will come out check his hunting license check his hunter's education card Check and make sure he's hunting legally on legal property. Measure the deer. If it was just something that simple, like, I, hey, I made a mistake. I, he looked legal. He looked good from this from 100 yards away or 50 yards away or whatever. But by the hunter calling DNR first yeah, and so admitting that's, his mistake, that goes a long way versus trying to hide it. It does, because if they have to come and hunt you down, you <laughs> Is know. that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the point is that they have that spread limit because it's preventing young deer who still have a lot of... Reproducing to go. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's encouraging hunters to go for older deer who probably aren't going to be reproducing or might only be another winter away from death. Then you're effectively removing the deer that would have just been naturally removed anyway. So that's pretty ethical. Yep, I'd say. Also, baiting deer is illegal. Baiting any any animal in most states is typically illegal. What do you mean by baiting? So shooting the animal over bait, over food, something the animal is there to consume. For example, deer like apples. They like corn. Now, if you shoot a deer underneath of an apple tree or in a corn field where it's natural, that's typically not illegal. But if you place food, uh, you know, if you place a pile of apples or you place a a 50-pound bag of corn out there and you sit there and wait, and when an animal, it could be a deer, a bear, an elk, whatever, when he shows up to eat the food and you shoot him, that is typically illegal in most states. Because that's an unfair advantage. Yes, it it takes away the fair chase. So spotlighting is also uh, 
illegal. Night hunting is usually illegal because it's a safety issue. Uh, a lot of times you can't even see what you're shooting at. I mean, you might see a deer, but if it's dark, you can't tell if it's a buck or a doe or what size it is. You may not know what's behind it. You know, a bullet can travel for miles. So night hunting is illegal. Spotlighting at night. What is spotlighting? Uh, so shining a light at a deer at night, the deer will actually look at the light and then freeze up. So that saying, a deer in headlights is like it's a, true. a legit yeah. thing? <laughs> yes. What some people will do illegally is shine a, you know, shine a deer, get the deer to stare at the light, and then either them or someone else will shoot the deer. It takes away the fair chase. It's illegal in most states, and uh, it's, it's unethical. You mentioned that night hunting is illegal because of a safety issue. There are regulated hours when you can and cannot hunt. Yeah, it's usually um, 30 minutes before sunrise and 30 minutes after sunset. And so when you go hunting, you will actually look up what time is sunrise. And so if sunrise is at 6 a.m., then you'll get your butt to the spot at like 5.15, 5.20 to kind of set up. Yeah, I like to get there quite a bit earlier than legal shooting time. That is legal to show up there before legal shooting time as long as you don't shoot anything. So you can be there. You yeah, just can't you can shoot. be there. Yeah. I think uh, you've told me a story where you got there and it wasn't legal shooting hours yet, and this big beautiful buck <laughs> yeah. walked right up, and you had to wait six more minutes, and by then the buck had walked away. Yeah, <laughs> so that was last year, and he 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 had no clue I was there. He he slowly made his way into the woods, and as soon as it was legal shooting hours, I waited around for a second, but. Then I tried to follow him, and by the time I got over there, he was gone. And the woods were so heavy right there. Once I got into the woods, there was even if I saw him, there was no way of getting a shot. It was frustrating. <laughs> I remember another story that you told me last year. You went hunting. You were there to hunt deer, and you didn't realize that it was also the same day as the beginning of pheasant season because the two seasons overlapped, and that also jacked up your hunting. Yeah, so I was on public land. I got there early, was the first one in the woods, was sitting there, it was, you know, it was silent and it got to be daylight and I'm sitting there. All of a sudden, uh, a shotgun goes off very close to me. I mean, it scared me pretty good. I had no clue anybody else was there. If I mean, it scared me pretty good. Well, then after that one shot, it seemed like every 10 seconds there was a shot somewhere in the woods. Well, after a few minutes, I was like, well... My hunting is over, obviously, so I left. Well, then come to find out, it was, yeah, pheasant season. And so people were out there with their shotguns shooting pheasants while I'm sitting there with my bow trying to get a deer. I had to do kind of the walk of shame out of the woods in front of all the pheasant hunters. It felt kind of stupid, but yeah, I'm going to watch out from, for that from now on. <laughs> Another thing I want to bring up is that uh, for waterfowl hunting, you cannot use lead ammo. There is a, such a thing as lead ammo for shotguns. And so what happens is the waterfowl will actually eat the lead pellets thinking that they are food and it kills them. One, one or two pellets can kill one ant, one duck or goose. So for those of us who don't hunt and we're definitely not familiar with the ammo, you're talking about a bird shot. So it's a whole bunch of little pellets packed into one shotgun shell yes so when you shoot it those pellets it's like hundreds go spraying in the air yes 
that's what they think is food. Yeah, they, they might see it, you know, on the ground or in the water or wherever, and they think it's food and they eat it. And the lead, what, one, just one pellet or maybe two pellets will kill one. So that would be an unethical. What yeah. is the solution if you want to go bird hunting then? You just, you don't buy lead ammo. So when you buy the ammo at the store, um, you just make sure it's not lead. What would it be made out of? Probably steel. Oh, okay. If, if a DNR officer or game warden catches you with that lead ammo on you, you will get a ticket and probably even get sent home. We discuss a lot of different ways that hunting can quickly become unethical. What are the actions one should take to ensure that they are hunting in the most ethical way possible? Um, obviously, obeying the law. Do your research. Know the laws. Hunter's Ed. That's a course that you need to take. You know, it's like an eight-hour course, depending on what state you're in, but it's it's necessary. It really is. Teaches you all the safety, um, shot placement. That's another thing. Shot placement. You never, never, ever, ever pull the trigger if you're not 100% confident that it's going to be a kill shot. It's always good to watch and see if you need to follow up with a second shot. That might be necessary. Tracking your animal. There are certain times that, you know, on some animals you should wait to track them depending on where you shot them at. Uh, because if they're not going to die just yet, you might actually be pushing them further away by chasing after them or trying to track them. Uh, using the correct weapon, correct time of year. Like I said, here we get a four-month bow season, two-week gun season. So obviously don't shoot a deer with a rifle during bow season. Uh, wasting meat, that's illegal. You know, Don't ever shoot an animal just for fun and leave it laying there. Unless it's a pest. Unless it's a pest, then that is allowed. But um, as far as deer, waterfowl, birds, uh, anything like that, turkeys, if you shoot one, even if you paid for your license and did everything right, you still have to harvest it. Respecting the habitat, respecting non-hunters' opinions. That um, sounds challenging. Yeah, that can get challenging. Well, that's why we're having this conversation. Yeah. So... A way you would do that maybe would be to keep your firearms hidden when you don't need them necessarily. Some people don't like guns, and I respect that. Private property. It is a In most states, it's a felony to kill an animal, hunt an animal on property that you do not have permission to hunt. So you can hunt public property where it's allowed. Usually you have to have a permit to do that. Private property, you have to have landowner's permission written. What I'm hearing is there are a lot of rules and regulations to be an ethical hunter. There's a lot of things you have to abide by, a lot of things you have to take into account. You have to do a lot of education, a lot of training. you got to be safe. you got to be smart. you got to be aware of the animal, of each animal, along with the ecosystem and the habitat. And like we mentioned, there's a two-week gun season here in Indiana, and you're working for 10 of those days. And it's a lot of work. It's a year-round training to keep your skills sharp. So when somebody does go out and they actually do get an animal, they are excited because it was so much work to get to that point. And that's when they will start to brag about it. And I think that's where the people who are anti-hunting get offended or upset because even though that person might be an ethical hunter or even view themselves as an animal conservationist, not a trophy hunter, it's coming across 
as a trophy hunter because they're bragging about it. They're taking pictures. They have a big old smile on their face that they just killed this animal. But the reality is they're they're happy that all of their hard work has now paid off and now they get to feed their family for the rest of the year. Yes, it's a lot of work. It takes years and years to get good at it. Um, It is very rewarding. That's why I do it, yeah. If listeners of the podcast or even people like myself who have never been hunting and maybe are interested in hunting, and if you want to stay vegan, vegetarian, that's fine, but this is starting sustainability, and not everybody wants to be vegan, vegetarian, and I applaud you for being vegan, vegetarian. That's wonderful. But if you want to continue to eat meat and maybe you don't want to support factory farming, then hunting would be a good alternative. And so if somebody wants to start hunting or get into hunting or even just learn more about it, what resources would you recommend, Channing? Well, there's multiple TV shows. Uh, There's the Bone Collector TV show that's pretty popular, Uh, Meat Eater with Steve Ranella. Uh, Steve Ranella has the the Meat Eater show. He also has the Meat Eater podcast, which is really good. He also has the Meat Eater cookbook, which I actually own. You're welcome. That was my Christmas gift to you last year. Yeah, thank you. It's good. So if you decide you really want to get into it, you can always look at your local state DNR website. Uh, All the rules and regulations will be on there. Uh, You'll have to take Hunter's Ed, which is it's pretty much for your, your safety and the safety of others around you. There's also guided hunts if you want to spend a little bit of money and actually have someone take you out. So they would really show you the ropes and... Yeah, so most of them you actually go and you camp out with them and they take you out depending on what state you're in. Uh, You can hunt different things with them, elk, deer, moose, sheep, bear. How would somebody go about finding a guided hunt? Uh, You could probably just go on the internet and search it for whatever state you're looking to hunt in. Are there any other resources or anything else in general that we might have missed that you want to bring up and talk about? Uh, No, I mean, what I brought up is probably a pretty good start, so i just go from there. All right, wonderful. Well, Channing, I really appreciate you coming on board. Three years later, I finally got you onto my podcast, so thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, it is now 1130 at night, and you've been up since 4 a.m., so we're going to say goodbye and good night. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. A big thank you to my husband, Channing. He was a little nervous coming onto the show, and he did very well. I also allowed him to drink his beer, which helped calm his nerves. (laughs) And that's the thunking that I had to keep editing out. It was him setting his glass down on the table over and over. (laughs) So believe it or not, I did add it out a lot of those thumps, but I had to leave some of them in because they were in the middle of talking and I couldn't remove them without removing the words at the same time and making the conversation sound really incomplete. (laughs) But I have made a mental note for next time, hopefully there is a next time, to place a towel down on the table to absorb the sound. (laughs) Lessons we learn. It is now time for the weekly challenge. And so I'm going to draw my card. We're starting to get low on these challenges. Well, maybe about halfway through them. Maybe a little bit more than halfway. That's all right. This week, the challenge is be conscientious. Wow, that's a big word. Be conscientious. (laughs) When you turn on the heating, make sure all the windows and doors are shut so you're not losing any heat. My first response to that is, duh. (laughs) Obviously close all the windows and doors if you're cold and then turn on the heat. Like why would you leave the windows open? But (laughs) 
now that I'm married <laughs> with children, that happens more often than it should not. <laughs> okay, it doesn't happen that often, but there have definitely been times, I would say at least once or twice a year, where it gets hot during the day, so my husband will run around and open up all the windows and let the house air out, breeze it, bring in some fresh air, and we're thinking, heck yeah, we're saving on all this money because we're not having to run our unit at that moment in time. And then later on in the evening when the temperature drops, my husband will ask me to close up all the windows because he's going to go and turn on the heat. And I think, okay, sure. And I run around and I close all the windows. And then the next morning we go downstairs and there will be a window that was left open. Was it my fault? I'm not the one that opened it. <laughs> I didn't even know it was open. It's not one that we normally open, but that has happened at least once or twice a year. <laughs> Usually once in the spring and once in the fall when we have the big gigantic weather swings. But yes, either way, since it is fuzzy sock season and warm fuzzy robe season in the evenings or in the mornings, let's be conscientious. Conscientious. <laughs> I told you that was a big word. <laughs> it's way too early in the morning and I'm on way too little to sleep. So let's be conscientious. <laughs> let's be, let's be mindful whenever we turn on the heating. Did you ever have to read the book Lord of the Flies or see the movie who starred Drew Carey as Piggy by the way? What a horrific depressing story. Why were we forced to read that in English class? I don't know. But I stumbled upon the real life story of Lord of the Flies, and I will share the actual inspiring survival story with you next week. Continue to stay sustainable, Sustainer Nation, and I will talk to you all then. Have a great one. Bye. Feeling overwhelmed by climate change? Looking for sustainable and ethical brands to support? That Ethic is perfect for you. Ethic is a simple browser extension that helps you find sustainable and ethical brands online. Learn more at ethic.org. E-T-H-Y-K.org.